This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self-Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I started Self-Work nearly six years ago, coming up in October of this year, in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be in therapy or be very interested in psychological issues, doing your own healing, to those of you who might just have been diagnosed with something or you're looking for answers in some way to what's going on with you but also to a third group of you, a group of you who are very skeptical of the whole idea of therapy and what it's all about. You may even believe some things that just aren't true. So I hope if you listen to self-work, it's not therapy, but at least it's a psychologist and a therapist for over 30 years who wants to share with you some information about what we do, how we think, and how possibly therapy could be helpful to you. One of the greatest honors that I get from one of my listeners is for you to write me and say, well, you know, I didn't want to go to therapy, but now that I've listened to self-work, I'm going to give it a try. So thank you, all of you, for being here. A listener left a voicemail for me within the past couple of weeks. In fact, she left two. And her question was one that constantly comes up in therapy. How are you supposed to trust when you've been abused as a child? So as usual, I did some looking around for what others had to say, and I'll add in my own two cents. But I want to stress that being able to trust is about connection, about intimacy. And if you struggle with it, then you will not experience that. Instead, you'll experience isolation and fear. The good news is, as Bessel van der Kolk says in The Body Keeps the Score, and I quote, As long as you keep secrets and suppress information, you are fundamentally at war with yourself. The critical issue is allowing yourself to know what you know. That takes an enormous amount of courage. I could not agree with him more. Now, there's a trigger warning on this episode, as we'll be talking about specific examples of abuse. So be careful if you listen. The voicemail for today is from a listener who had severe withdrawal symptoms from being on an antidepressant for years. And again, I'm not a medical doctor, but I can convey what I've observed clinically. Before we go forward, let's hear from Ozark Mountain Medicine, one of the newest sponsors of self-work, and all about their offer to you, 10% off your order of their very special CBD products, which I use. Diagnosed with degenerative disc in my back when I was in my 20s, I've long been a seeker of alternative ways to help reduce inflammation. And I can't believe that the best product I've ever found is produced here in Northwest Arkansas. Ozark Mountain Medicine, located on a small boutique farm in the Ozark Mountains under the careful watch of CBD guru Bill Morgan, is a grassroots operation which produces some of the highest quality CBD available on the market. Unlike marijuana, which contains THC, which is what makes it mood-altering, CBD isn't the same and is legal in all states. Ozark Mountain Medicine's products contain at least 16 varieties of hemp, where other CBD products may use only one. Think of it as a healing gumbo for your joint and muscle aches, and you've got the picture. What's most important to me and to you is that it works. I've been told at least three times in my life that I needed to be reassessed for back surgery. And three times I've kept walking, getting massages, and for the last three years, steadfastly using this product. You can take it orally in tincture form, or calming salves are available, which is what I prefer. The other benefits of taking it 
include immune support, increased relaxation, reduced anxiety, and improved sleep. So here's their fabulous offer for self-work listeners. All you have to do is use this promo link, ozarkmountainmedicine.com slash self-work, and you'll receive 10% off your order. I never suggest a product to you that I haven't used myself, and I reap this one's benefits each and every day. That code again is ozarkmountainmedicine.com slash self-work. Sometimes the best solutions are right under your nose. So try a bit of Ozark Mountain Medicine CBD and see for yourself. So sit back and relax, get in touch with your own body, and let's learn about how you can begin to trust after abuse. You know, we've always gotten our pets through friends or the shelter, and Smokey was no exception. He was a mix of terrier and something else. He was basically a mutt. We got him from the shelter when he was about 10 weeks old, and they didn't know much about him. He'd been brought to the shelter after someone found him on the road. We had this wonderful, loving creature until a few years ago. Now, he wasn't too friendly to people who came to the house, basically believing that anyone who came to the door was a serial killer. But what was so obvious, even years into his being loved by us, when you reached down to pet him, he dug his head. What seemed sadly evident was that he'd been abused as a pup and that his body remembered, even though he'd been lovingly taken care of for years. That's what we're talking about today. The very real vestiges of abuse that can inhabit your body, your mind, and your soul for years afterward. And as a consequence of that, you struggle with trust. As I said in the intro, this episode was triggered by a lovely message a listener sent to me, first telling me that she listens religiously to self-work, that's of course pleasing to me, and something I so appreciate, and told me what a struggle she has with trust after years of being abused in multiple ways as a child. She asked me not to use her voice message, so I'm not going to, but I can sort of quote her. Basically, she said, I have trouble bonding with people. Especially in my relationships, I don't expect too much, but I'm in a good relationship now with my partner. So how do I get over this issue? Can you give me tips on how to start trusting myself, others? And then she added, and especially my parents, who I assumed were her abusers. So let's talk about the kinds of issues that can arise because of past abuse. Again, please remember the trigger warning. And what I need to say quickly is that the responses, the survival strategies of children are unique, and thus they can't really be easily codified. I can't say to you, there are two consequences, or three, or seven, or whatever, no specific, because they're going to be unique to you. The abuser, who was supposed to be safe, a grandfather, father, mother, pastor, coach, whomever, but especially family members who you relied upon for shelter, food, and safety— They weren't safe at all. I've said before on this podcast that the hardest part of being a therapist is actually hearing what adults do to children in the name of discipline or simply because they can. They have the power and use it cruelly and viciously, randomly, or every day. And as I quoted Bessel van der Kolk in the intro, he's a neuropsychiatrist who I respect immensely. He says, it takes so much courage to look that abuse in the face and see it as abuse and neglect or whatever it actually was. There's often not a why, except that you carry around the idea that it was your fault and hence the damage is even greater. 
So how are we going to start talking about the consequences of abuse or the inability to trust if it's so hard to actually categorize? I found an article by, I'm going to crucify his name, Darius Convicious. I'm not sure how to say it, but it was on Psych Central. He divides the consequences of abuse into three groups. The problems with, I feel unacceptable, I trust too quickly, or I have to do everything myself. Let's go through these three consequences or responses to an inability to trust. But first, before we get there, let's hear from BetterHelp, the number one online therapy provider who will get you and a therapist connected within a couple of days tops. And that's so important because nowadays I hear so many therapists aren't taking new patients and you need to see one quickly. I'm proud to say that BetterHelp has been a sponsor of SelfWork for more than two years now. They're ranked often as number one when compared with other professional therapeutic online services and do their best to match you with a therapist that you'll feel gets you, is attuned to you, and with whom you can find the kind of help and healing you need. You can do video sessions, you can text, because BetterHelp wants to offer you the most accessible and private therapy they can. Their therapists are licensed professionals. In fact, I've received offers from BetterHelp to become one of their therapists, but self-work keeps me busy. So if you need services that are financially affordable and convenient, then trying BetterHelp may be the best choice you've ever made for yourself. And you get 10% off your first month of services if you use this link, betterhelp.com slash selfwork. You know, I'm a therapist because I got good therapy, because I learned the immense value of hearing another experienced and knowledgeable perspective on my own life from someone that cared and was invested in my getting better. So try BetterHelp and get one month at a 10% discount, betterhelp.com slash selfwork. Okay, let's settle down and start talking about these consequences of abuse on the ability to trust. The belief that I am unacceptable reaches into all of your relationships. As we've talked about, that shame talking. That's you taking on the fault or the responsibility for what happened to you. And you know you didn't choose it or deserve it, no matter what you were told. When my clients are struggling with letting go of this belief, I ask them how old they were when the abuse began. Sometimes they say two or four or six. Then I ask them if they know a child of that age or to imagine a child of that age standing in the room with us. And I look at them and say, imagine. And then would you ever tell them that they were locked in a closet because they were bad? And they look soulfully at me or somewhat surprised, and they say, well, of course I wouldn't. I say, but that's what you're saying to yourself. So again, the listener asked me for tips, and this particular example addresses how you begin to trust yourself, to confront those things that were told to you, screamed at you, done to you, insinuated manipulatively. You want to question the voice of your shame, the voice that you call it your fault. And that voice can be very loud and insistent, but it's lying to you. It's not that some shame doesn't serve a purpose when you've actually done something hurtful or painful and you feel that shame, because that can lead to a change of behavior, and that's when shame is useful. But when you carry it around like somehow you caused the abuse, you have to challenge the belief that you're unacceptable. It's vastly important. 
This is another question that I bring up to clients who are struggling with the idea, but it didn't happen to my sisters or my brothers. It only happened to me. It must have been something about me. They're finding themselves unacceptable, and they're playing that out in their relationships. So I say, please tell me what could possibly make you unacceptable, because I bet if you learned that someone else's history was the same as yours, that they were the person that was selected to be abused, you would have compassion for them. But somehow, your story and you are unacceptable, and they are not. That doesn't make sense, does it? You can see the importance of self-compassion here. So, what's the connection, however, with trust? Because if as a consequence of abuse, you believe you're unacceptable, then how could you possibly trust any information that disagrees with that? If someone tries to love you well, you'll push them away. And in fact, you may be drawn to those that will repeat your abuse. And so the cycle continues. So you have to learn to become aware of the myriad of ways you act out being unacceptable. To the messages you give yourself about the way you look or the choices you make or the kind of person or parent or friend you are. You can act out unacceptability or the belief that you're unacceptable in subtle or not-so-subtle ways. I have a patient right now who constantly says she's sorry. That's unacceptability. You can take on responsibility for problems that you didn't cause. That's unacceptability. Or you can try to prove your acceptability by always doing for others. Or you can be very needy for someone to give you affirmation that you are acceptable but then you turn around and don't accept the kudos that come your way because you're unacceptable, right? You don't feel like you've earned them. The problem can be so multifaceted. Again, there's no easy way to understand this. You have to look at your life and say, how am I playing out the idea that I'm unacceptable with things I say to myself in the way I perceive my relationships and what I choose to do with my own life? Let's take the second consequence, the struggle to trust too quickly. The first and the second can be combined, certainly, that you feel like you're unacceptable and you still struggle to trust too quickly. Why? Because you never have learned that trust is to be earned, not passed out randomly. Why is this a blind spot? Because you weren't treated well consistently. You weren't given apologies by a parent for making a mistake. Because you weren't treated as if you were important enough for you to expect safety. Instead, when you're treated as if you should trust, even though all the evidence is to the contrary, you are silenced. You don't have a voice. You aren't allowed to speak about what your gut is telling you. This is wrong. This is unsafe. So as an adult, you don't have clear boundaries where you might expect normal respect. You may not even have normal expectations. You just blindly trust. And I'll state again, you don't wait for someone to earn your trust or, and this mistake is one I made a lot, when your trust is broken, you blame yourself or you make excuses for the other person. Now that's a whole episode in and of itself. But again, the basic problem is you don't understand that someone needs to earn your trust because you respect yourself too much to just give it out randomly. All that sets you up for is manipulation, big time, and again, repeating the cycle of control and abuse. Okay, here's number three, the third consequence of an inability to trust or not feel safe. You can decide, 
I have to do everything myself. Any of you who've identified with perfectly hidden depression know the obsession that you have, that you have to remain in emotional control. Since I don't know how to trust because I wasn't safe or I was swallowed up in a relationship, however it happened, if I don't count on anyone as an adult, if I don't let them into whatever's going on with me in reality, then I can't get hurt. Now, you could have decided this as a child as well. Let me say that again. If I don't count on anyone, if I don't let them into whatever's going on with me, then I can't get hurt. But can you hear the problem? You also never experience true intimacy, and the loneliness can be horrible. In fact, I interviewed about 60 or so volunteers for the book I did on Perfectly Hidden Depression. These were people who'd read my blog post about what I was trying to describe and agreed to be interviewed. And these were people from all over the United States and some people, until I figured out how expensive international calls are, there were some from all over the world. But I'd ask them, why did you risk talking to a complete stranger about such private pain? They all said, because I don't want anyone to live the life I've lived. The despair is too much. The loneliness is unbearable. Again, to quote Bessel van der Kolk from his book, The Body Keeps the Score, quote, Traumatized people chronically feel unsafe inside their bodies. The past is alive in the form of gnawing interior discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded by visceral warning signs. And in an attempt to control these processes, they often become expert at ignoring their gut feelings and in numbing awareness of what is played out inside. They learn to hide from themselves. And you are hidden from others as well. You're in control, that's true, but the cost is very, very high. So once again, back to the listener's question, she asks me for tips on what to do about a struggle with trust. I've learned in the past decade the importance of listening to the cues and the clues your body is giving you. Not to go back necessarily to your memories and process those. Your body has memories. Again, remember me talking about Smokey. I first learned this through EMDR training, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing therapy, where the entire technique involves a heightened awareness and listening to what your body is telling you. Or at least that's where the technique starts. Too many medical providers and psychiatrists, and sometimes therapists with their recommendations, rush to medication to help people with the alarm bells that are going off in their bodies and minds. Again, I understand those things can be highly disruptive to daily living, and at times we do need medication help. But as I've learned with my own panic, if my first reaction is to pop a pill, then I'm not learning anything, except I learn to always keep my pills around me. <laughs> You can tell I'm a huge Bessel van der Kolk fan because I'm going to quote him again. As I often tell my students, the two most important phrases in therapy, as in yoga, are, notice that and what happens next? Once you start approaching your body with curiosity rather than with fear, everything shifts. Again, what this listener had told me was that she'd been on psychoanalysis, which is a fine therapeutic technique, and she said it really helped her but they don't necessarily stress what's happening in your body. So listen again to Bessel van der Kolk in a section of his book called Befriending the Body. Trauma victims cannot recover until they become familiar with and befriend the sensations in their bodies. 
Being frightened means that you live in a body that is always on guard. Angry people live in angry bodies. The bodies of child abuse victims are tense and defensive until they find a way to relax and feel safe. Physical self-awareness is the first step in releasing the tyranny of the past. And again, I'm quoting Vanderkoek. In my practice, I begin the process by helping my patients to first notice and then describe the feelings in their bodies, not emotions such as anger or anxiety or fear, but the physical sensations beneath the emotions, pressure, heat, muscular tension, tingling, caving in, feeling hollow. I also work on identifying the sensations associated with relaxation or pleasure. I help them become aware of their breath, their gestures, and movements. Medications only blunt sensations and do nothing to resolve them or transform them from toxic agents into allies. He's talking about listening to your body, befriending your body. Because what happens is that you distance yourself, you detach from the body that is getting abused, both physically, sexually, emotionally, and all the evidence of that abuse You try not to pay attention to. You defend against it instead of listening to it. What a therapist can do is to help you slow down and be more aware by asking questions such as, where do you feel that? I often ask that. How old do you feel right now? What you're helping someone do is to notice. You stay curious about what's happening in your body and the message it gives you. But you can do this for yourself as well. You can say, where am I feeling sad? Where am I feeling fear? Is it in my neck? Is it in my throat? Is it in my chest? Is it in my legs? Where do I feel it? And what clue does that give me? And how old do I feel? There are techniques like tapping, and I'll have a link for you to look over if you don't know what that is. There are other simple things, just stretching, stretching your body and listening to it. Where do I feel tense? You can try yoga, massage, touch. Practice being mindful in the moment and breathe. Breathing seems so simple, but you can use the breath to relax. You can get clues from what you're doing with your breath. I had a patient several years ago now who had terrible anorexia, and there had been violence in her home, and she didn't breathe. She would go for seconds without taking a breath, and then she'd say, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. She couldn't relax into her body. Breathing seems so simple, we don't ever think about it. But when you do, you can notice how shallow or deep it is, how long or short, how stiff or flexible you feel. That's healing. That's taking back your body. That's being aware of you. So many of us don't pay attention to what our bodies are telling us. What do your gestures, your use of your hands, how you hold your head, how you sit, how you stand, all of that information is important in healing from abuse in learning to trust, in intimacy, in connection, and in self-compassion. Speak pipe message from drmargaretrutherford.com Let's hear the listener voicemail. Hi, Dr. Margaret. I recently tried to wean off antidepressants, and it did not go well. I experienced a period of psychosis and disassociation. I had been on antidepressants since I was 14 years old. I'm now in my mid-30s. I am doing this under the um, recommendations from my doctor. But I was wondering, after all these years of being on antidepressants, 
Do you have any suggestions on how to successfully get through a wean and manage withdrawal symptoms? Thank you. Again, I want to say I'm not a medical professional, so all I can tell you are my observations about when people have gone off medication. Some stop taking them and do fine, but with others, there can be all sorts of withdrawal symptoms. And I know hearing about these things keep many from trying them when they might be helpful. But I am of the opinion, as I said before in this episode, that too many physicians are too quick to prescribe. Now, the withdrawal effects this listener describes seem to me to be fairly unusual, at least in my experience. It made me wonder if the medication she stopped was actually an antidepressant or another type of drug. Sometimes people call things antidepressants that actually are in another category. But her question to me was asking if I had an opinion on what to prevent those kinds of withdrawal symptoms from happening. First, you ask yourself if you've been on a medication that you no longer need, because if you've been on it for a very long time, that's something that needs to be considered and discussed. It's possible that it's not having the same effect that it was, but obviously being on something very long term can have an effect on how you get off. So you want to talk to your prescriber about possible withdrawal symptoms. Make sure that your provider is someone who knows psychotropic medications rather than someone you see from another specialty. A lot of the time, you may have gotten your medication from another doctor, an OBGYN, or someone who's not a specialist in psychotropic meds. So you want to make sure that if you're going off of it, that you talk with someone who's a little more familiar, perhaps, with what can happen. There are also genetic tests now that are touted in being useful in medication selection, and you can find out more about those. I've actually talked about what's called pharmacogenetics, and I'll have that link for you. You also never want to go off a medication quickly. You may have to titrate it down very slowly, so if you begin to have withdrawal symptoms, you can manage them. And I've had people tell me that sometimes it takes them a very long time. They have to go off very, very slowly in order to tolerate the symptoms. So I don't really have tips about withdrawal except to say that you need to talk with someone and you need to be guided by someone who really knows what they're doing. Now, she said she was, but sometimes doctors who know what they're doing can help you really come down very, very, very slowly. Or they actually may use another medication to help you do that for a temporary period of time. Good luck to that listener and to all of you who may be on medication and decide to go off and just do it carefully. Thank you for being here at Self Work. I took a vacation within the last 10 days, and I feel completely rejuvenated, and I'm so glad to be back at the mic. Thank you for those of you who are reading Perfectly Hidden Depression and letting me know by writing some reviews what it means to you. And thank you for your reviews for self-work. I can use more of them. I always learn more about what you really want from those. So I encourage you and ask you to do that. You can subscribe to DrMargaretRutherford.com and you'll get a weekly newsletter. It's a really easy way of keeping in touch with me. You'll get the weekly blog post as well as our weekly podcast. There are thousands of you who already do that. And I'm so glad you're a part because I actually often talk about little things that I've got going on and that you might be able to participate in. Again, thank you. I'm honored that you've spent your time with me today. Please take very good care of yourself, of people you love. Let's all try to be kind to those in our community 
and on social media. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.